When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Can I just say something to you? You have made me very popular in my neighbourhood. Really? Because you appeared at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival this weekend, and I, I think did. several of my neighbours yes. came and said hello and it, to it you. It was great to have you there supporting me as well. I t- people said, are you, you going to go and see Ed uh, speak at the Stoke Newington Liter- Literary Festival? And I said, no, I need to set some boundaries with him. You know, we we need to understand that we can't be joined at the hip all the time. We've yeah. both got wives. We've both got other things going wives on. Wives alive. Yes. So I was just I was just trying to set a boundary. But right. um, my next door neighbour, Fidelma, said you were dreamy. Oh, oh, well, Fidelma was incredibly nice to me. In the cafe at the leisure centre the other day, the lady tapped me on the shoulder and said, are you Jeff Lloyd? I said, yes. And she took a, an earphone out and said, I'm just listening to you now. And she'd subscribed to the podcast after seeing you at the Literary Festival. Wow. Anyway, you've, I feel you've given me a lot of street cred in my neighbourhood, so I thank you for that. Mm, and pleasure. if you want the opportunity to come and look at Ed and me, uh, we've got another live show this week. It's on Sunday. It's another one at the Underbelly Festival on yes. the South Bank in London. Yes. And I'm delighted to say that we're going to be joined by one of my favourite comedians. He's just so good. His uh, his recent tour was some of the best comedy on the state of the world at the moment that I've, I've seen. It's Nish Kumar, yes. who you'll know from Re- the MASH report. Really excited to have him. And we're going to be talking about whether Britain needs a written constitution. So that's what we're going to be talking about at the live show. Yes. It's, it's Sunday on the South Bank in London. This week's episode of, of this podcast, though. This week's episode, we're talking about well-being and whether we should reorient government policy, not to be promoting GDP, gross domestic product, but to be promoting well-being. And we'll talk about what well-being means. But one reason for doing this is that the New Zealand government, led by our friend, friend of the pod, Jacinda Arden, uh, and friend of the world, I think. Yeah. Uh, everybody wants Jacinda to be their leader. Um, they've just done a budget based on well-being. And we're going to be talking to the finance minister. So the New Zealand chancellor of the uh, exchequer is going to be. So, you know, we're sort of we're gradually collecting the New Zealand cabinet. <laughs> uh, like the Pokemon. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got Grant, who's the uh, who's the who's the Chancellor of the Czech or Finance Minister, and we've got Jacinda. Let's, maybe we can sort of collect them all. And in addition to the finance minister from New Zealand, we're gonna be talking to 
Gus O'Donnell, former cabinet secretary to three prime ministers, G. O'Donnell, God, as he was known, he is a big advocate of uh, well-being and making well-being uh, a central part of uh, the way government uh, works. And we're going to be talking to Bronwyn Haywood, uh, an academic uh, from New Zealand, who's going to be giving us her assessment of what the New Zealand government has done. And Annie Quick at the new, from the New Economics Foundation, who leads their work on well-being and inequality. So plenty to be going out, and so no time for a comedian this week. Uh, your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that there's nothing like a dame. And my wife has become a dame. So it's happened. Yes, so we were at the palace on Tuesday. Uh, so you've been to Buckingham Palace on, on a have. number of occasions, so you didn't feel the need to steal any cutlery? No, we went on the judicial coach. Uh, with ten, 10 judges. Hang on, judges travel by coach? Yes, um, no sort of gilded carriages. Uh, is it a luxury coach? Do, do, is there a sing-song on the coach? It wasn't that luxury, it was sort of, I think it was kind of, you know, appropriate. Right. Um, Were they all in I the... did ask, actually, at the beginning whether there was going to be a sing-song. <laughs> did you? Yes. You shouldn't ask, you should just what, try and start do, one. I said, what do judges sing on the coach? Good morning, uh, judge, by 10 CC. And they, they sort of looked at me as if to say, you've come on the wrong coach, matey, <laughs> matey Popeye. Uh, um, but they were all incredibly nice. And there was a very good ceremony. And, uh, you know, the the Queen was giving out, gave out her, the Dame of Justine. so exciting. And then we had a little drink afterwards with the Queen. And but you're not allowed, Pro- protocol says that you're not allowed to talk about what you talk to the Queen about. I mean, I'd love to tell you which is her favourite episode of Reason to be Cheerful. <laughs> But unfortunately, because of official secrecy, I just can't tell you whether it's sortition or the land tax or universal, more universal basic income, yeah, how yeah. to be more pirate. That is just, it's a bit like the leisure centre story. Yes. It's just going to have to... Take it to the grave And the you. Icelandic video. It's just going to have to slightly <laughs> remain under wraps. What's your reason to be cheerful? Mine is another podcast that I've discovered. Mm. It's called Atomic Hobo. I don't uh, think this is a reason to be cheerful. It kept you up all night. It did, but it's really good. And it is terrifying. But I think if anybody grew up during the 70s and 80s, the threat of nuclear war and things like the four-minute warning and threads on TV and the book, yeah. when the, uh, the cartoon When the Wind Blows, that's sort of imprinted on your psyche. And it's this uh, woman called Julie McDowell who's writing a book about the nuclear era, uh, but just looking at different aspects of, of what it was like. So how the four-minute warnings would have worked. Um, and, you know, the various systems. The BBC would turn into something called the Wartime Broadcasting Service. Each police station around the country had a special console where they would operate the sirens, but also local vicars and Pub landlords, well, they they were the third set of people who would be notified this because in rural planned. areas, yeah. So they had these sirens. This was all planned. Was yeah, it? yeah. It's a fascinating Gee, podcast. It's really good. The stuff about bunkers, the stuff about what would happen to pets after the what bomb dropped. I've not got up to that episode yet. I'm saving that for when I can't sleep tonight. What's it called? It's called Atomic Hobo. Sounds really scary. Jeff. It's terrifying. I don't but think you should be listening to it at night. No, I think I'm, I'm going to start listening to it uh, when I'm doing something a bit more cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're delighted to say that we are now joined from New Zealand by Grant Robertson, the finance minister in New Zealand. He's been the minister of finance in the Labour-led coalition government since 2017. Uh, and just in the last couple of weeks, he announced the first well-being budget uh, on the 30th of May of this year. Grant, thanks so much for joining us. 
Oh, hello. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So, so you've just announced, as I say, the world's first well-being budget. Can you just tell us what what that's all about and and what it's going to mean in practice for government policy? Yeah, well, essentially, it does some things I think that have been done before, and maybe some that haven't. The things that it's probably done before is that we have said about establishing a framework to measure our success beyond just GDP growth. And, you know, it is important, especially for for Labour-led governments, to be able to acknowledge that we do still want the economy to grow. We want it to grow sustainably, but we don't think, um, you know, following and worshipping GDP growth rates is the only thing we should do. So we've used a framework. It was established by our our Treasury here, the Living Standards Framework, and it measures uh, New Zealand's success against four capitals, uh, financial, natural, human and social, or as I prefer to call them, um, the money, the people, the environment and communities. And we have around 61 indicators in that framework that we can look at to show how New Zealand's progressing. And it's, it's anything from home ownership rates and incomes through to life satisfaction and your connection to your community. A few other countries have done similar type things to that, but I think where we've done it differently is we've actually used the evidence from that framework to inform what we are investing in. And so we applied the framework. We went to experts, science advisors we have in government agencies, international experts as well, and identified the the priority areas for our budget that would have the biggest long-term intergenerational um, um, impact on well-being. And so those five priorities were established for this budget and they really did dictate where we went with it. So what does it mean practically? Well, it means, for example, the biggest new spend in the budget is on mental health because there's absolutely no doubt that you know mental health is critical to our well-being. It's been severely under-invested in, in New Zealand for a long time. But it's not just mental health delivered by our equivalent of the NHS. It's how do we deal with home homelessness issues that are related to mental health, how are we addressing the mental health and addiction issues of people in our prison systems. And just in terms of your experience as finance minister, because you've obviously done a budget under the old system and now you've done one under the new system, does it feel like it's driven a different approach as as people were, I mean, my experience of budgets in the UK is people spend months sort of making bids, preparing what policies they want. Did, did, did it feel a different process? I felt like the budget was a bit like a contestable fund. And essentially, individual ministers came and bid for their particular thing. And the Minister of Finance, um, you know, the equivalent of the Chancellor, made a, made a sort of arbitrary decision about what they might or might not fund. This felt different because it was based on evidence. Um, each proposal had to go through a well-being analysis. So it actually, in terms of new spending, so it actually had to show how it was impacting on those indicators of well-being I mentioned earlier. And so that felt very different. I think the other thing that felt different was the the collaboration, and certainly as Minister of Finance, I I prioritised projects where agencies could show they were working together. That did feel very different. Um, Where we've got a way to go is in what we call the baseline expenditure, the stuff that sits there and is demand-driven and is more difficult to get to, but we're about to launch into a, a process about how we can put this well-being framework over the top of that spending as well. Did you find that there were trade-offs between the conventional way a budget would have been done uh, around maybe economic growth and your 
your five priorities, which just for our listeners are improving mental health, reducing child poverty, addressing the inequalities faced by indigenous Maori and Pacific Islands people, transitioning to a low carbon economy and thriving in a digital age. Did you find that the, did they kind of, you know, collide at all with, with, with the traditional economic growth measure? Um, not a little bit, but perhaps not as much as you might think. I mean, the last two of those priorities are really, to my mind, the two great economic challenges of our time, or two of the three, which are effectively the future of work and how we deal with climate change. The third one, from from my point of view, is inequality, which is what the other three uh, priorities are about. So where perhaps it did play a part um, was we um, have been running budget surpluses in New Zealand for the last few years, and we had a, a fairly large forecast surplus for the coming year. It's smaller, and one of the reasons it's smaller it's still a surplus, but one of the reasons it's smaller is because this well-being analysis led us to believe that we needed to do greater investment in all five of those priorities, and we were prepared to have a smaller surplus in order uh, to be able to make that investment. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. What can the Jeffocracy learn from what you've done? The biggest takeaway for me from, from all of this is that this is uh, something that, that will, I hope, play a part in reducing the appeal of populism. And I know that might sound like a lofty goal, but I do believe one of the issues we've had is that people do not see themselves in government and in uh, the way we do budgets or the economy. And so, in part, this is about saying, reflecting people um, back into themselves, you know, what they value. And I think that challenge of defeating populism is so enormously important, I know, in the UK, but also um, elsewhere in the world. So perhaps that's the one takeaway, is I think there's a contribution here to to shifting the public's view of the way politics works and the way the economy works to look more like um, how they feel it should. And maybe that's a potential lesson for, for folks in the UK. It sounds great, Grant. You've you've given us even more reasons to be Kiwi than we had uh, before. Thanks, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. Cheers, no worries at all. With us now in my loft, we have Annie Quick, who is Senior Programme Manager at the New Economics Foundation. Uh, Annie leads the NEF's work on wellbeing and inequality. And from New Zealand, where she has postponed her evening glass of wine, uh, Bronwyn Hayward, who is Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Canterbury at Christchurch and co-investigator at the Centre for Understanding Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. Um, Hello, both. Bronwyn, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Um, we just talked to Grant Robertson about the New Zealand wellbeing budget. Could you maybe talk us through the, the background to this and, and what it's trying to address and what you think it will ultimately mean for New Zealand? Oh, great. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the budget actually and this focus on well-being really actually began under the Conservative government before Grant. Uh, Treasury had begun to look at living standards using the OECD's living standards framework and starting to think about alternative ways of measuring how we're doing. It's still very much focused in a growth model. Their first sort of practice was to look at, well, how could we measure how we are doing and in what particular areas because there had been increasing anxiety around um, particularly youth suicide. We might be a beautiful small green country, but we've got some really significant problems. And one is that we lead the OECD in youth suicide. 
And uh, another is that we've had a really dramatic uh, decline in water quality in our rivers. Uh, housing's really expensive. So the national government began, but it was really this coalition government of Labour and the Conservative New Zealand First and also the Greens as an outside coalition partner that have really picked it up and sort of put it on steroids. It's made a big shift in public discussion about what the point is of an economy and that's been a really major shift. And so the big spends have been around mental health, particularly targeting suicide, around tackling child poverty, a very big spend around domestic and sexual violence, which is a a big area of that's a problem for us in New Zealand. Spending around uh, what we call Fano order, which is uh, Maori for family well-being, sort of, uh, and a Pacific health focus, and a big spend on rail. So, it is a significantly different budget in that sense. Of course, everybody is not happy with it, but I think in terms of a pivotal moment, this is. Uh, quite significant for New Zealand and it's one of three big shifts we've done because back in 1934 we were the first country to bring in universal social security and then of course our other big pivot was in 1984 when under a Labour government we shifted to a very uh, neoliberal economics and went into quite a significant period of deregulation. So this is a much more cautious step but it's interesting to watch the whole shift in public discussion happen within the space of a few months and really people start to understand something that was initially sneered at in the media. Now people really quite like it, especially because the issues of youth suicide at such high rates really hit home. So when in the past New Zealand's been described as a rock star economy back in 2016 and a large number of New Zealanders are working more than 40 hours and many in two jobs. They weren't feeling like they were experiencing this rock star economy and many families were experiencing significant tragedy. That's been the shift of saying actually an economy has to do more than just grow its gross domestic product. So that's really interesting. You're basically saying to us this is more than spin. I mean, this isn't just a sort of representation of what a government might have done anyway. This is this is kind of having material effects on priorities, public debate. Is that is that right? Yes, I think it is. Um, of course, the critics from the left and the right are not happy with it. They would argue, probably quite fairly from the left, that this is still a budget that is set within a, a mindset of growth, so we're still worried about growing our economy. We're still looking at social capital. But behind that, there has been a really significant pivot in actually the values and the measures of our um, economy, the, the complicated dashboard that the Treasury's developed for measuring things like civic engagement, mental health, physical health. They're actually embedded now in the budget and they're reported on. And it's the first time people have been able to understand a budget, to be honest, <laughs> because it's talking about things that matter to families. So it's been something that people are actually talking about. Annie, Annie how important is the balance between well-being and growth? Are, are those two things compatible or integral to each other? I think it's really important that we dethrone growth properly. So I, I don't think we're going to manage to get the kind of 
changes that we need by just adding well-being onto growth and hoping we can pursue both of them together. So, I mean, you have to look at the background of GDP here. So GDP was actually a measure that was developed in 1941 in the context of the Second World War, where the government at the time needed to understand how much economic activity was going on in order to know how much they could mobilise. So there was no GDP before then? There were various kind of attempts to measure it historically, but that was the first time that it was seriously measured. So it's got quite a grim military history, right? Um, And that's literally all it is. It's just a measure of economic activity. It includes things like if uh, estimates of illegal drugs trade or prostitution increase, that increases GDP. doesn't measure environmental impact or unpaid work, mostly done by women, care work in the economy that actually keeps things going. But the biggest problem, I feel, with the kind of fetishization of economic growth and GDP is really that it creates a false illusion. And that, that illusion is that what we need to do is grow the pie, right? Um, so the idea that we just need to, to grow, get more money, get more wealth, and then everyone will be better off. And actually, of course, just like New Zealand, I mean, the UK is one of the richest countries in the world and we have 14 million people living in poverty. It's just not true that what we need to do is grow. Um, So by focusing on on growth, uh, it really sort of is a convenient distraction from the major sort of economic injustice at the heart of our economy. Um, So, yeah, I do think we need to get rid of talking about growth as well as talking about well-being. And in that context, how do you view the New Zealand experiment? I mean, do you think it's a sort of step forward? I think it's a fantastic step forward. I don't think we should underestimate how big this is. Um, there's lots of problems with it, as Bronwyn was saying. Uh, for me, one of the big issues, one of the sort of dangers of the well-being framing is that when people think about well-being, it's really easy to think about kind of yoga holidays, healthy eating. It's got yeah. a bit of a reputation problem, right? Uh, and Jeff and I are going on a yoga holiday together, aren't we, Jeff? Oh, I've brilliant. heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> is that the outcome of yeah, this? Exactly. Was that this podcast you wanted exactly. to get us to give you some recommendations? Exactly. You told me we're going to Ibiza. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, well. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just sort of, I'm, you know, bearing in mind my different audiences yes. here. But it is a real problem, right? I mean, what's more important than living a good life? That's absolutely central to, to what we should be existing for. And yet it's got, you know, it's, it feels very fluffy in public discourse. And, and one of the dangers is that we can often look to individual solutions. Um, and, and my feeling is that the New Zealand budget did that a little bit too much. So it's brilliant that we're focusing on mental health spending, like absolutely essential. I'd love to see an equivalent kind of effort in the UK. And yet, like, why? Why does the New Zealand have such high suicide rates and such poor mental health? Those are going to be structural issues to do with housing costs, to do with poverty, to do with all of these other things. So I think when we talk about well-being, it's really important that we talk about the economic and social determinants, not just the sort of individual uh, level solutions. So there are five factors that go that, that have been sort of prioritised in New Zealand. Just Just on this point about how you measure this, does all this go into a measure of well-being? How how does that work? Yes, it's not yet at something like a genuine progress indicator. At the moment, it's a complicated dashboard. It's divided up into three divisions. How are we measuring our people's well-being? How are we measuring our country's well-being? How are we measuring our future well-being? There's a series of, there's about 15, I think, indicators under those three. So it's quite messy at the moment, but it is deeply embedded into the budget. So that's one very interesting part of it, that actually the reporting is there, the little graphs are there, and I think gradually over time, governments will be working with them. And Annie, what about international wellbeing? Because you get these tables, and I think Britain does quite well. We're at number 15, which if you take the Nordic countries out, so that's five, and then they're always going to be at the top of everything, that puts us in the top 10. Um, It's just not fair to have them in. Let's just take them out, right? (laughs) Um, 
So, so are the metrics applied internationally? Well-being isn't the same thing everywhere. So it's really interesting um, looking at the Welsh example of the framework in Wales. So they had quite a good quality sort of process that they went through where people really came together and said, what's important for us? And I think that that process is really powerful and important. And there's some things that will be common across places, um, but they'll, you know, things like the importance of Welsh culture and Welsh language came out really strongly in that consultation. Um, in terms of sort of internationally, so the UK is got, you know, for life satisfaction, the kind of most common measure of subjective well-being. So when people um, tell you themselves how they're doing, we're a 7.7 7 out of 10. So yeah, we're not like top or the bottom. But actually, when you look at inequalities, it's a much harder story. So one in five people in the UK report having high levels of anxiety. And then if you broaden out to look at kind of a broader set of measures, I mean, you know, that the headlines have written themselves right over the last four years. So stagnating wages, uh, massive levels of um, uh, poverty, particularly child poverty, loneliness. And I think one of the key themes of the UK economy, particularly since 2008, is actually insecurity security right and you see that across sort of housing you see that across work you see that across many different areas and one of the interesting things that has come out of well-being evidence recently is the importance of of insecurity to people so um, interestingly having a a poorly paid and insecure job is actually worse for well-being than having no job at all right how significant is asking people their subjective well-being in this or are you saying that's got to be just one among many indicators For me, it should be one amongst a small set of indicators. So we need a small enough set of indicators that we can genuinely Because that's the advantage of GDP, right? Which is it's one measure. So I mean, it it may be a rubbish measure, but people will say, well, at least you can, you know what it is. You know what you're doing. Right, exactly. So I think we need a small number of of measures. But for me, I don't think that we should just be looking at average life satisfaction. um, Because things are more complicated than that. One of the problems with GDP is that it does try to combine all of human welfare into one number and and fails. So there was a great example a few years ago, um, a study done by PwC as part of the case for the third runway in Heathrow. Um, And they were trying to do a sort of well-being evaluation of a third runway, right? So their their research question was, is it good for people's well-being to go on a foreign holiday? (laughs) And surprise, surprise, (laughs) they found that it was, right? Right. They weren't thinking about the well-being or lives of people threatened by climate change. They weren't comparing domestic holidays to foreign holidays. They weren't looking at the fact that actually most flights in the UK are taken by people who are relatively rich and already have quite good well-being. So for me, we need to look at a sort of sustainable and but also, sort of fair well Sorry to interrupt, well. but our measure has been go- the measure in the UK measured by the Office of National Statistics has been going up since for the last eight years. It's, so we started measuring well being at the point just just after the recession, right? Right. So I mean, I see. It's, so we it's don't know what it was like before. We don't that. know what it was right. like before that. But also, I would really encourage us again to look at inequalities and well-being. Like, I'm not that interested as, as a policymaker. I wouldn't be that interested in getting somebody whose well-being is an eight up to an eight point five. Right. I'm interested in the people who are really struggling, um, uh, sort of in society, particularly marginalised groups that often. I mean, that's another story, but may well not end up answering these questions in the first place, right? There is something here, isn't there, about these measures of well-being and what they tell us about growth? Because Jeff talked about the international comparisons, and you can see why you might need to take some of it with a, a, a pinch of salt, the international comparisons. But there is a sense that there's a certain amount of growth, a certain amount of size of your economy that you need national income, but then its well-being just starts to plateau, doesn't it, Annie? I mean, that, that, and that does, probably does tell you something. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we see that at a national level. So at a national level, once a, an economy starts to grow a certain amount, you you really um, don't see many uh, well-being benefits. But also on an individual level, um, our well-being uh, peaks at a certain amount of income. And there's sort of slight differences of um, different studies suggest slightly different areas. But, you know, once you're making 80,000, making 120, 150, 200,000 isn't increasing your well-being. Many chief much. executives haven't quite got the message, no. I think, on that, on that score. <laughs> Yeah. Is there a an a sort of idea here that we want to make the shift but what precisely what measures to use is sort of contestable? Is this something that could lend itself to a sort of participatory process, a sort of deliberation among people? In other words, you know, we we, we Jeff and I many episodes ago did this episode on sortition and both of us went in as skeptics and came out as sort of zealous zealous supporters. Um, you know, presumably you could imagine this being a sort of deliberative process by which a country changes its measures. A hundred percent, yeah. And I actually think that process of coming together and deciding what we want as an economy is a really important one. I mean, I think you, you could put some, some of the sort of democratic and societal breakdowns of the last couple of years down to the fact that, the, that, we, that we don't do that. We never have that big question, just as Bronwyn is saying that they're having now in New Zealand about what, what we're for. Um, yeah, I, so I, th- I think that's a really important point. I think it's there's a bigger problem here about the way that we use evidence in policymaking being very technocratic and kind of top down. So as we shift to using other measures, I also think we need to be, um, uh, you know, involving people much more in how we do policymaking. It's not like we're going to come together, choose a number, and then we can just pass the whole thing over to civil servants. And instead of doing yeah. cost benefit analysis, they can do well-being cost benefit analysis, and we can all <laughs> we can all yeah. sit back, right? There's politics is messy there are trade-offs there'll be trade-offs between different measures even once we've chosen them um so i think opening up policy making and uh, working out how to do that in a participative and a deliberative way is like a, a really big question for the next few years before we let you both go, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is uh, 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 it's, an, it's, it's a world untroubled by electoral systems. It's, it's it's a utopia in which I am installed as a, a benign leader. I want to emphasise here just how benign it is, and uh, to demonstrate that, if I I very magnanimously um, appointed you both joint minister for well-being, what is the the first thing you would do on day one? I mean, I assume when you say that I'm Minister for Wellbeing, that what you mean is that I'm the Chancellor, right? Because we're sure, following a New Zealand sure, lead sure. and we have to put Joint wellbeing in the Treasury. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It's a real sofa <laughs> style of government. So if you sit on that sofa and say you want to be Chancellor. Co-Chancellor. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so one of the first things I think I would do is think about ownership, right, which isn't something that you would automatically think about in relation to well-being. But I think a lot of the big problems that we have in our economy is down to the fact that so much of our land, our business um, is in the hands of a very small number of people. And that is terrible for inequality, but it's also terrible for that feeling of insecurity and, con- and, and lack of control. There's lots of ways that we can think about redistributing ownership. My first step, though, would be um, the Inclusive Ownership Fund, which was proposed by NEF a little while ago and has been adopted by Labour. So it's really simple. It's the idea that businesses give a proportion of um, uh, their profits or their business away each year. Um, and that is basically in a fund that's then owned by workers. And how does that speak to the well-being concept? So I think, so if, if we begin to distribute ownership, then people, first of all, get a 
a higher proportion of their profits. So you're literally redistributing income and wealth, which is going to be absolutely a first plank of any uh, attempt to seriously improve well-being. Um, but also it, it gives people more control, right? Um, I think that that lack of control that people are feeling, that feeling of insecurity, I think it's, we're going to struggle to tackle that unless we really distribute power. And we can't do that without distributing ownership. Bronwyn? Oh, I wish you hadn't asked it. <laughs> I think... Many people I... don't really want to serve in the Jeffocracy, Bronwyn. You're not alone. <laughs> Will you stop trying to organise coups? It's a terrible thing for academics to actually have to make a decision. We're terrible <laughs> about that. Uh, I think one thing I would have to do is raise the basic income for children, for ch- uh, child poverty here, but also universal services. Um, and then in terms of our, our climate, I would... That universal services would also be really tackling our um, our transport, and if I could, I would really cut back our dairy herds. People think that we're a country of sheep, but we are a country of cows, and our methane production is massive. But in terms of our actual well-being, invest in universal services. What, what do you think? Did they get the job? Definitely, <laughs> yeah. Well, look. Uh, Annie Bronwyn, it's been uh, great to talk to you. Um, I look forward to uh, working with you to organise a coup against the Jeffocracy. (laughs) Thank you. You you can work remotely if you'd rather, Bronwyn. (laughs) We'll be having a lot of early morning meetings. Yes. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Lord O'Donnell, who is the former Cabinet Secretary. He served three uh, different uh, Prime Ministers, uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. He was Press Secretary uh, to John Major. He's somebody that I knew uh, in the uh, Treasury when he was Permanent Secretary at the Treasury. Gus, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. You're enhancing my well-being already. Ah, you're enhancing ours. Um, So you were at the top of the civil service. Um, Just for our listeners because we're obviously talking about well-being, how is policy made at the moment, just before we get on to how you think the kind of well-being approach would, would, would change it? Well, I think when you're looking at policies, you're quite often very focused on the financial. So when you're in Treasury, you're worrying about deficits, so you're looking at financial returns, costs and benefits, and benefits drawn up relatively narrowly, Obviously, over the years, that's got better and better. So, for example, when you're deciding whether to build a road or not, you're looking at trying to value time savings, but also the savings in reduced accidents, so lives saved, injuries saved, but also impact on air pollution, CO2, all those sorts of things. So policy is getting broader and broader. I think the the step where where we're struggling with is moving that forward to saying, yes, but overall, is this leading to an improvement of people's quality of life or their well-being? And, and that kind of gets you into the area of how do you actually measure that well-being? And, you know, now we have the Office for National Statistics looking at different ways of asking people. So subjective well-being, you know, overall, how satisfied are you with your life? Questions like that. And why do you think the current approach is sort of insufficient? Do you think it, it, there's quite a lot it doesn't capture for you? Is that right? Yes. So if you were to take, let me take the example of health. When we look at whether a new drug should be available on the NHS or not, we know how much the drug costs. 
And when we value whether we should do it or not, we, we use a quite sophisticated measure called QALYS, Quality Adjusted Life Years, which says how much does this actually improve a quality life for someone? So if you have a drug that costs $5 million and actually keeps people going for one more week when they're in acute pain anyway, that probably wouldn't do it. Whereas you've got drugs which actually give people pretty good quality of life for a time and aren't so expensive, you might want to go with that. Now, that's an example where we're doing what I would call proper well-being analysis. But actually, when we come to thinking about should we keep this hospital open or not, how much should we spend on drugs rather than a behavioral program to prevent uh, things, then I think we, we, it starts to go wrong. If you were using a well-being approach, for example, in health, you'd be much keener on spending money on children's mental health and making sure that mental health, people who have mental health illnesses diagnosed were actually treated. How strong is the link between GDP and well-being generally? If there's growth and there's more money for public spending, does, does that tend to mean you're living in a country with higher well-being metrics as well? The relationship isn't one for one by any means. And obviously, uh, part of this is problems with GDP. You know, people using GDP as a, a measure of how well you're doing really do need to kind of grow up, I think, because uh, GDP matters somewhat, but it's a measure of activity, not of how well you're doing. Even Simon Kuznets that put it together many, many decades ago said, don't use this as a measure of success. For example, if all the people doing volunteering in our society suddenly gave up volunteering and started doing illegal drug activity, GDP would go up. So GDP you know, is, is a measure of activity. It goes up when you have catastrophes like earthquakes. Uh, it goes up when you use up uh, resources, like depleting your resources of particular minerals. Um, so it, it's really not a sensible measure of how well a society is doing. You've also suggested that there might be a connection between sort of well-being, inequality and, and Brexit. Is that right? Yes. I mean, when, when people looked at correlations, and I stress these are correlations, not causation, correlations between uh, areas that voted Brexit, because remember, nobody knows how individuals voted, uh, apart from what you ask them. But we do know how areas, regions voted. So when you look at regions and the percentage voting leave, there's quite a strong correlation with inequalities in well-being. And that comes through. And I think what that's telling you is people are looking around and saying, well, actually, uh, this isn't working for me. You know, the combination of globalization and technology means that I can see people that seem to be doing a lot better out of this than I am. And therefore, they're expressing a feeling of they want change. And I think that is a very big driver of why people are thinking, look, I, I don't know precisely why this is happening, but it certainly isn't working for me. And so I'm going to register my protest vote by saying, actually, you know what, I, I, I think we need a change. Now, what would you say to those people who say, well, look, rather than getting into all of this subjective well-being stuff, we should just look at things like inequality, unemployment, poverty, because that's where you're sort of leading. I mean, in other words, is it better to just go to those structural factors? Well, um, those are all important. But what's what you need from a public policy point of view is to say, well, 
How important is unemployment? How important is having a job? Does it matter that that job is a zero hours job uh, rather than not? How important is income in all of this? Is it just about income? So what we're able to do with the subjective well-being data is to say, right, that's what we're trying to explain, variations in subjective well-being between individuals and around the country. And we have data on income, unemployment, mental health status, uh, their personal relationships, things like that. And we can work out the relative merits of all of all of these different things. Gus, something we wanted to ask you about while we've got you is you, you are now chair of Pro Bono Economics PBE. Can you, can you tell us about what that is and, and what it is you're doing there and how that ties into well-being economics? Sure, yes. I'm the chair of a charity called Pro Bono Economics, which, curiously enough, does what it says on the tin. We use skilled economists. We uh, uh, get their services pro bono, completely free. We help charities measure their impact. And what we're trying to do is charities come to us and they, you know, they're, they're, they're looking in particular, they want to be able to show that they're making a difference. And they want to show that they're in, you know, making the world a better place in terms of the outcomes that that charity is specifically set up for. So we take their outcomes as whatever they tell us they are and, and we try and say, okay, so let's look at, uh, are you doing that? So we use economists to go in there Quite often, this involves us getting them to collect data that they haven't really thought about. So quite often, we need to be able to say, well, you know, the people on your program, your charitable program, have these results, but can we get a control group that are very similar that aren't on your program so we can look at the differences between those? And in an ideal world, what we would really like to do is to be able to say, and we're looking at the well-being of these people before they've been on the program and after and we can now look at the impact of your program on those individual well-beings. But what pro bono economics does is tries to use skilled uh, economists as, as volunteers uh, to help charities. And along the way, those volunteers get an increase in their well-being. We have something on the, the podcast where I think there'd be a lot of well-being. It's, it's, we're, we're building a utopia. I would be a benign leader. We call it the Jeffocracy. And if we were uh-huh. to give you a grand post, I was thinking maybe cabinet secretary. Yeah, we've got experience. Yeah. That. And also, but yeah. no experience of being cabinet secretary to a benign dictator, I don't think, unless you would yeah. count Gordon Brown. No, well, maybe in, at, at times, maybe. <laughs> what would your big policy be if we gave you carte blanche day one uh, in the area of well-being? What, what would that be? I'd say to uh, the, the dictator, we're going to do a spending review and we're going to do the spending review. and We're going to get the bids and we're going to allocate out all the money according to how much the increase in this budget is going to improve well-being Interesting. sustainably over time. Interesting. Do you think it's possible to turn around the super tanker of government, though, Gus, on this? I mean, you know, you are a very articulate spokesperson for this agenda, but you also know how entrenched the sort of old ways of doing things are. Yes. Well, I've, I've just left a meeting where we had the, the governments of Scotland, Wales, New Zealand uh, and Northern Ireland talking about all the well-being initiatives they're taking. Um, there's a group that I dubbed the SIN group, Scotland, Iceland and New Zealand, uh, who are trying to kind of formulate their budgets in terms of well-being in various different ways. This is starting to grow. I think we're getting there. It's coming from below a lot. You know, you hear a lot of people talking about personal well-being. You hear communities talking about well-being. 
you hear local authorities doing it, devolved nations, we're, we're struggling. You're absolutely right. We're struggling at the national level. But when we've got the benign dictator, we'll be fine. Gus O'Donnell, um, thank you. It's been very, very good to talk to you. I've got one slight final bonus question for our listeners, Gus, which is I yeah. found an old article that you wrote from a journal called Capital and Class, <laughs> which by the wonders of, of, of modern technology, I've been able to print out. And you and I have discussed this article before on the logical consistency of Sraffa's economic Sraffa. theory, a comment absolutely. on Savran and Steedman. Yes, absolutely. What was it all about? Yeah. Uh, well, it was all about uh, Schraffer wrote his book called Production of Commodities by Means of Commodities. I wrote it back in the... 1980. Uh, yeah, 1980. So it's, it's interesting that that article I wrote was the final one as an academic. I then joined the Treasury and was about to start having my vetting process. And having an article in Capital and Class, which was a Marxist journal, wasn't exactly great as we entered the period of the Thatcher government. Well, I, it, it looks incredibly learned, um, <laughs> as, as we would expect. Gus, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. So what did you think? I wouldn't say I was sceptical to begin with, but there is something about this area of well-being which felt a bit woolly to me, and it brought to mind David Cameron and his attempts to yeah. look like he was a soft, modern conservative talking about yeah, gross sort of domestic fluff, happiness sort of fluffiness. Fluff, yeah. fluffy, fluffy doodles. Um, and so, so thinking about it, I think, you know, the, the shift away from growth feels important, but there was something else that came out of it that I was ended up being quite excited by, which is giving a government or a country a framework to talk about what it wants to be as a society. Yes. So I can feel like in this country, yes. we, to some extent, have, have lost some of those things that bind us together and the support for the safety nets and, and structures. And I, I think what it is, seems to be really good at is setting out the terms of the conversation about what type of society we want, and that's exciting. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I went in also slightly sceptical, not not sceptical about the problems with GDP, but just like, you know, when people start saying happiness, you think, well, you know, that's so subjective and so, you know, is that really about government and, and all that? And I ended up being really converted, actually. I, mean, I ended up thinking the New Zealand thing is really quite serious. It's not just a piece of presentation. But, you know, some when we were doing budgets in the Treasury with Gordon Brown, it would be, you know, presented as, you know, the budget for the long term or the budget for fairness. or You know, and it, that sounds like a sort of a wrapper that you try and give to a whole sort of hodgepodge of measures. But this sounds like a really serious sort thought through thing, I think. I, I, so so and, and I sort of began to think, well, why wouldn't you do this? And then um, also putting it together with the sort of sortition idea so that it's, you know, I, I think, you know, there's some things that maybe sortition is harder to do with, but a proper participative process where you get a few hundred people to sort of really crunch through this. So it's not just government saying, right, it's going to be these measures. I mean, it could it could really drive what policy doesn't. And Grant seemed to be saying it had driven some of the decisions that they'd made. Yeah, and, and it can feel a bit in this country, like in the last 10 years, by things being framed as spongers and, and grafters, it's, it's undermined some of the values of the society. But what, what this is, what well-being is, is inherently compassionate. 
And that's, that would be a great way to reframe things. I mean, there's also a sort of kind of insider's nerdy point, which is I always remember the problem we had with budgets um, when they were being done was that everybody in Britain tended to think, if you ask them, what do you think about a budget? They think, how much is beer going up or wine going up? As a, you know, they, they, because do you know what I mean? That's like it's always a penny on a pint or it's, uh, you know, 5p, 10p on a bottle of wine. People think about it in that context. And then obviously your spending review is a different thing. But I think it sort of gives it a kind of – I was really struck by what Bronwyn said, that it's it's sort of given – it's kind of provoked a debate, exactly as you say, about what kind of society you want to be and the relevance of things like budgets and spending decisions to that. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's program about well-being, uh, you can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or on Instagram to at Cheerful Podcast or on Facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. This one comes from Fionn Magori. And the subject is golf. I really enjoyed today's episode, as I do each week. I'm a student of inequalities in London. It's quite a bleak area of study, so any and all reasons to be cheerful are well appreciated. I just want to mention that Harriet Brain's idea of banning golf, and this was the same episode as as talking about land reform, just coincidentally, that Harriet Brain's idea would be an essential part of land reform. Given that most golf courses available to members of a particular golf club only, they take up an enormous amount of land within a community. It's hard to see them as a public amenity in the way that we do other sports facilities. The open green fields, which look like parkland, are of course not parkland. It's hardly justifiable these private spaces exist when it could certainly be put to much better more socially productive use. As it stands, golf courses are incredibly wasteful, receiving active facilitation for essentially a rich people's playground. That is going to get people talking. I think I'm right in saying that the uh, amount of land used by golf courses is about 10 times as much as the amount of land for allotments. Wow. In the UK. So, um, yeah. So that's uh, Fionn. I've told you I've spent a lot of time in Sweden. Over there, golf is completely different. It's really popular, but pretty much all the courses are public courses and there's nothing sort of elite or moneyed about it as a sport. I mean, there are... I don't. I just don't know. Um, have you ever played golf? I have played golf. I quite enjoyed it, actually, a few times I played it. What about the hand-eye coordination, Ed? Well, I'm not saying I was good at it. <laughs> this, uh, this is also on the subject of last week's episode. Uh, the subject line is Land for the Many Show. Um, comes from Tim Jones, who says, I'm a town councillor in Cornwall, and the impact of second homes is a real issue down in this part of the country, as for many coastal communities. As an example of the challenges we face, my wife grew up in a small community with stunning views of the south Cornish coast. We had a primary school, two pubs, and several local shops. Once it became popular as a holiday destination in the 70s and 80s, most of the homes were bought up by people who either rent them as holiday units or use them for just a few weeks a year uh, where once there was a lively community all year round now in the winter months it can feel like walking through a ghost village and uh, of course local families simply cannot afford to compete buying homes as income levels down here are well below the national average he says uh, St Ives has led the way 
In introducing powers under the Neighbourhood Development Plan process to cap the number of homes that can be converted to second-stroke holiday homes, and other Cornish councils are looking at doing the same. Uh, So the Land for the Many report potentially brings a valuable perspective to this debate. On the other hand, John McTurnan, somebody I worked with at various points, he was in the Blair government and he uh, also worked for Jim Murphy, the uh, leader of the Scottish Labour Party. He's a political commentator. He sent a long email about the land episode. Hi, Ed and Jeff. I enjoyed your podcast, but thought there was scope for a significant amount of more questioning of the proposals and the facts you are presented with. Uh, he says he's a sceptic about the new policy discussion document. He made six different points. I'll, I'll just pick out a few. He says on the construction of the land register, creating titles when ownership is ex- exchanged is a pragmatic solution that substantially cuts cost. A modern doomsday book with an expensive undertaking, money best spent, for example, on social care. There is a cost providing information. Why should the taxpayer bear that rather than the inquirer? He also talks about the issue of land value taxation. He says you can argue for land value taxation uh, it's a holy grail of policy, an irreversible change, but that is achieved by gaining cross-party consensus. So the argument for LVT, as he calls it, has to be one in the conservative tradition, not just a progressive one. A basic land value tax could have been introduced by levying VAT on new build, as it is with renovation, repair and rebuild, and the cost would have travelled through to the underlying land rights holder. However, no one has done that for being accused of raising the cost of new build. We did actually cover land tax itself on a much earlier episode he also is critical of the idea of being able to compulsorily purchase land at the undeveloped price he says it fails the test of fairness the policy is expropriation plain and simple ownership of land is ownership of current and future value if someone can access capital that allows them to change improve developed land i own then i should be able to get a price for that land that accepts that without my land no value creation is possible property rights are at the center of liberal democracy should not be treated lightly i think just as I understand the debate on this point about hope value of land, I think that some of the proposals aren't that it should be simply uh, purchased at the agriculture value, but that it shouldn't either be purchased at the as it is at the moment at the land with planning permission. There should be some sharing of the sort of benefit between sort of taxpayer and um, you know individual. So I, I think. I think there is sort of room for debate on that. Anyway, he says, complex problems demand hard heads and clear eyes as well as warm hearts. Thanks for a stimulating listen. Yeah, great to hear from John. And this comes from uh, Jonathan, who works in the Treasury, who says, Hi, both. I remember I remember Ed flouncing around the Treasury in the early 2000s. I think flouncing is, is uh, particularly uh, telling choice of word. I mean, were you, do you consider yourself a flouncer? I, I don't know, Jeff. Do you consider me a flouncer? I don't think of you as flouncy, no. But right. But maybe a, an earlier incarnation. Uh, he says he had an amazing US preppy bouffant hairstyle. Just Google Jeff Colby from Dynasty, which I have done. I mean, so uh, if I go on Google Images yeah. here, I mean, is this the is this what you were taking into the barbers Let's circa two thousand? Does it is it different from my hair now? I think I think you're a little less bouffant now. I'm not saying there's no bouff. Not saying you've become booth free, but you know it's it's perhaps perhaps a little uh, less boofy than it well, once was. Maybe I'll see if I can suppress the pictures. <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast dot com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
Well, here we are in the outro. And before we go, you uh, you sent me a very interesting piece of research that you gov have commissioned. Some important polling on the issues of the day, which is what are the very best classic British foods? Uh, and, and and this to- is specifically a sweet edition. Yes, top of the pops is scones and Victoria sponge, the undisputed champions of sweet British cuisine, with eighty five percent and eighty one percent of those who have tried them saying they like them. And then, and then right down the bottom is a deep fried Mars bar, which I think is unfair because uh, it's something you can mainly only get in Scotland. So unless they've weighted it across the whole country. Well, no, they say people who've tried them saying they like them. Ah, oh, right. So, so presumably that includes people. I mean, that only includes people who've tried them. I don't like this list. I think it's sort of skewed towards posh foods. I think people are being aspirational when they're answering these this survey. So Eaton Mess is up there in the top tier. I mean, I'm surprised However, about Eaton Mess. Yeah, that shouldn't be up there. And then in the low tier is a Battenberg cake. Favourite of Nana's everywhere. I quite like Battenberg cake. I, I mean, of these, deep fried Mars bar, Welsh cake. I mean, Welsh cakes is in the low tier, which I find slightly peculiar. Hot cross buns, that shouldn't be in the in the top tier. Oh, definitely it should. Really? Yeah. Would well, you not like hot cross buns? I like a sweet bun, but I could do without fruit being imposed on me. No, I, I really, when I'm trying to eat something. I really healthy. like the hot cross bun. Actually, okay. um, I'm I'm with the British. I mean, you know, obviously, I reflect the British public on a number of matters. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not. I wouldn't put sticky toffee pudding up there. Really? See, I think you're out of touch with the people on that. Really? Yes. You yeah. like sticky toffee? It's pudding. it's the classic uh, pub dessert, isn't it? I think it's what people are having when they have the Sunday lunch out. I mean, would you put trifle? Well, trifles in the mid tier. Mm. Trifle definitely beats Battenberg cake. Christmas pudding is quite surprisingly unpopular. Do you think people like Christmas pudding, or do you think people eat Christmas pudding out of tradition? Though maybe they do. They don't eat Christmas pudding not at Christmas, do they? No. Which no. rather t- if it was that nice, <laughs> exactly. Like there's a reason yeah. sort of cream eggs aren't on sale the whole year round because people wouldn't be able to the control sort of, themselves. They're the Brussels sprouts of the dessert yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. Although I think Brussels sprouts get a bad rap. Me Maybe too. they should do it for vegetables too. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for sharing that yeah. important piece of research with yeah. us. It's good to know that you're pouring on the big issues over the uh, the big issues, the polling. Yeah. I'd like to thank our guests, Grant Robertson, Bronwyn Hayward, Annie Quick, and God, Lord Gus O'Donnell. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research by Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was designed by... Emily Power. And I think we should say just before we go, we've released one of our cheerful book clubs. Please do give us feedback. We're we're in a sort of trial stage. We're in beta. I think be- you got there just before yeah. I did. Beta testing, is that what That's it's called? That's right, yeah. Um, so give us uh, give us feedback. We've got lots more to come, and and the idea is that uh, in a little while we will set it free. We will launch it yes. on its own podcast feed, but we're just sort of drip feeding you a few to see what you think so far. So he's been a jam roly poly. He's been a knickerbocker glory, and these have been reasons to be cheerful. Listener.